You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Daniel Silva, who's the award-winning number one New York Times bestselling author of The Unlikely Spy, The Mark of the Assassin, The Marching Season, The Kill Artist, The English Assassin, The Confessor, A Death in Vienna, Prince of Fire, The Messenger, The Secret Servant, Moscow Rules, A Defector, The Rembrandt Affair, Portrait of Spy, The Fallen Angel, The English Girl, The Heist, The English Spy, The Black Widow, and House of Spies. His books are critically acclaimed bestsellers around the world and have been translated into more than 30 languages. His newest book is The Other Woman, which is out today, if you're listening to this podcast, the day we posted it. So welcome and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here. So you've, you've done this now for quite some time. You're an incredibly successful author, but this is our first crack at you. This is our first chance to talk to you here at SpyCast. So I do want to ask you some questions about uh, your early life, as we do have a lot of listeners who are trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up. Uh, and you kind of took an interesting, I don't know, interesting is the wrong word. You took a, a, a kind of a, a roundabout route to get to being a spy novelist, because you started off as a journalist, both in print and TV. But what made you want to kind of drop everything and start writing spy novels? Um, I would I would take a slight issue with the characterization of roundabout. Um, I think that journalism has been um, uh, a path for, for many novelists. You could go to Hemingway and Graham Greene, a couple of my literary heroes. Uh, and I uh, I became a journalist because I wanted to be a novelist. Um, it was it was um, my goal uh, pretty early in life. Um, it was definitely something that was um, on my radar in, in, during my my college years, um, and I, I literally chose journalism because I thought it would be um, the, the the best path for me to achieve my goal, which was being, becoming a novelist. I thought it would it would be uh, good training in the art of storytelling, that it would provide me with good experiences that I could draw upon later, uh, and that turned out to be the case. I was able to serve in the in the Middle East as a journalist, uh, so I had a I had a, a brief um, 
but but very successful journalism career. Uh, but it was in service of, of, a, of a larger goal, and that was to to one day become a novelist. What made you decide that now was the time? Like, was there a moment where you said, you know what, I think I've done what I needed to do in journalism, and now I can move on to writing that spy novel? Yeah, I think that um, I was, I felt that I was, had reached an age um, <clears throat> that was appropriate. I was in my... Um, early 30s when I started work on my first manuscript. Um, I had reached a, a point in my, in my career where I was um, something of, a, of, of a, a television news executive where I wasn't, I wasn't really writing on a daily basis, and I, I really felt the need to um, apply fingers to keyboard and compose, so I had a, I had a a spiritual need to write. Um, I felt I was ready to write. Uh, and it was at that point when I was about 33, I guess, <clears throat> that I um, began work on my first manuscript. And that manuscript would eventually become known as The Unlikely Spy, and that would become my first novel. And this first novel w- was more historically based versus contemporary. Is that? It was a total historical yeah. novel. It was a, a World War II thriller. Is that easier to write when you when you you're not trying to capture the kind of cultural, you know, feelings of the day when you're looking at things historically? I don't know about easier. Um, it was certainly fun. It was it was wonderful to um, <clears throat> go to a completely different place in my writing rather than uh, the world in which I was living in. That was, you know, Washington politics and policy 24-7. Um, and so every morning from about you know, 4.30 or 5 until 9 o'clock, I was in a completely different place. I was in wartime London and, 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 and Berlin. And it, it, was, it was, I have to say, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and I, when people ask me for advice about writing their first book, I always tell them to try to enjoy it. Um, because once you... You sign a contract and it and it becomes work. Um, it 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 changes. Right. Um, look, I, I have I have I have most days I have a lot of fun doing what I do, um, but it's also true that that uh, there are deadline pressures um, and publication pressures and pressures from publishers and and readers, um, and it and it does change once you once you become a professional. Yeah, I mean, it's your job. I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I, I spend the day when everyone's like, oh, you're the, you're the historian at the Spy Museum. How much fun? I'm like, it's my job, right? It, you know, it, it, is, it is a job, right. Um, and uh, so that is, that is my advice to the, inspire, the aspiring odd, uh, author novelist is to, to please enjoy the actual writing of that first book because um, it will never be the same again if you're if you're fortunate enough to to uh, become have that book published or even uh, more fortunate to actually make a career in this business, which is which is tough. So, who were or even are your go-to authors for the spy genre? I, mean, are, I assume it's going to be some of the usual suspects from the kind of historical writing, but who who are the modern-day ones that you look at as well? Um. You know, I, I have to say that um, my 
inspiration is it comes from um, the older grandmasters, mm-hmm. uh, and that there are um, a number of of, of uh, people working in the field um, wh- whom I admire. I, I have to say from the outset that that uh, Vince Flynn was a, a a personal friend. Um, our families were close, um, and um, so I would I would count obviously put Vince as, as someone that 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 I admired a great deal. Um, but I think it's pretty clear from my writing style that my my influences go back a ways, <laughs> um, and um, I'm, I'm very influenced by um, obviously. Uh, John Le Carre and, and Len Dayton and, and, and those types of writers. Uh, but Graham Greene is a tremendous influence. Eric Ambler, uh, who I think kind of invented the modern spy novel, is a, is a tremendous influence on me. Um, and that said, most of my reading, when I read fiction, I, I am not a, and I think a lot of people are surprised to see to, to see this, you know, um, a few years ago, I was asked to list my top five for, for the iBooks um, page. You know, what are your top five favorite novels? Um, and only two of the five had anything to do with with espionage and intrigue. I'm, I'm my real when I when I read, I really read literary fiction. Well, so I, does fiction or nonfiction help you the most? And maybe there's no yes or no answer to that, or, or maybe it's everything. Oh, gosh. I mean, um, I, you know, because of the kind of work I do and trying to stay, stay contemporary and up-to-date on everything that's going on, I, I read a, a tremendous amount of nonfiction, obviously. Um, and... Um, because I'm not a, a real ebook reader at all. In fact, I, I, I rarely, rarely buy a book, uh, an ebook. Um, I am, I am buried in books at home. I am, I am running out of space. Uh, I have a library <laughs> with, with, uh, several thousand volumes in it. Um, and I'm, I'm, a, as, as I like to say to people, I'm either writing a book or I've got a book in my hand. I'm a, tr- I am a, fortunate enough to, to live a very literary um, and, and, you know, a reading life, just part of my life. Writing, writing about intelligence can be tricky. I, I think we're, we're a bit of a persnickety group, like, I guess, doctors and lawyers when they read books about that. that we, we like the nitpick. Um, so what kind of prep work do you, do you find you have to do to make sure you try to get this right? You know what? I do as much as I can. I talk to as many people as I can, and then I promptly don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> That's a great philosophy. And, and so, um, you know, I am not writing for a handful of, of um, professional um, intelligence officers. I mean, I have a, I have a large, large um, readership out there. Um, and so I try to get the culture right. I kind of I try to get the basics of, of tradecraft and technology right. Um, and but my first and foremost responsibility is to tell a compelling story. Um, and look, my my character Gabriel Lon, 
has two very distinct sides to his his um, his makeup. He is a Israeli uh, intelligence officer, assassin, spy who who worked as an art restorer as his cover job, and so the books have have um, many of the books have had a very strong art component to them, which have given them a very unique cast. Um, and I think that that has um, made the books appeal to a, a reader who might not necessarily pick up a spy novel. Right. Uh, in fact, I know that for a fact that I have many, many readers who I'm the only the only quote unquote spy novel or uh, you know novel of international intrigue. I'm the, I'm the only person that they read in that genre. That they don't read other other writers, um, and so I have have um, always sort of felt that my books appeal to two types of reader. One is the the dedicated reader of of espionage novels, and and then I have a whole other group of of, of readers who who came to the series for different reasons. Now I want to ask you about your protagonist in a second. Let me ask you one last process question because your sure. your books are full of twists and turns. That's what makes them compelling spy thrillers. And me, as someone who will almost certainly never write one, I just don't have it in me. I don't think. I wonder: Are these planned out, or do you sometimes surprise yourself as you're going along? Like, oh crap, that would be a cool way to go, you know, without thinking about it beforehand. Right. I I rarely um, have all of the of the twists and turns mapped out um, when I when I start writing. In fact, I, I oftentimes have none at all. I, I, I like to see about eight to ten chapters of, of a book that I can, you know, write out in shorthand and then I and then I get to work. But I, I do not outline my books. Um, I, I have found it. I've tried it a couple of times and it's really just a complete waste of time for me. And I think that's true of a lot of, of sort of top-tier thriller writers. I know that, that uh, Michael Connolly doesn't bother with an outline. I know that Lee Child doesn't bother with an outline. I've just never, it's never been a valuable tool to me. So that's a long way of saying, no, I don't know all the twists and turns. Now, you know, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book called The English Girl that had a very prominent twist in the novel. Um, and without giving it away to our to our listeners, the English girl was not so English, um, and and um, I obviously knew what what that what that twist was early. Um, but but really, I like I like to be a little bit surprised, or I like to to take what I've written and then sort of hold it up to a mirror and turn it inside out um, and build the twist that way. Let me move on to talk about your protagonist. I, I think this really, you know, you're an American writer and your protagonist is Israeli. And this really goes against that trite idea of write what you know. I mean, I'm thinking of the Tom Clancy or very, Jack Ryan was basically. Yeah, no, no, I'm going to interrupt. Very trite. Yeah. Idea. Um, very, very trite idea. Um, you know, did, did Thomas Harris know what it was like to be a, a psychopathic serial killer? <laughs> we hope not. Let us hope yeah. not. Yeah. <laughs> but he wrote a darn good one. And so I've always found that to be um, uh, really bad advice. Uh, the, 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 I mean, Game of Thrones, I mean, goodness gracious. <laughs> um, 
write what inspires you, write what excites you, write about a world that you want to inhabit for a while, but for goodness sakes, don't limit yourself to writing only about what you know about intimately. Anyway, I digress and I interrupt. No, no, you, you basically answered the question. I want to, how much of you do you interject into Gabriel? Is it a chance to play with a complete alter ego? No, I think that, I think that a writer, um, Look, I've always found that subtext enters novels without the author's full participation, that it's sort of an unconscious process, that you unconsciously leave bits and pieces of yourself, not only in your main protagonist, but in other characters as well. And um, I think there's probably more to Gabriel. There's more of me in Gabriel than even I realize. There are certainly... Um, um, very obvious things about about uh, Gabriel and I, but there are some that are not so obvious about about Gabriel and I. Um, and I think the most important thing to remember about Gabriel Long is that he was never intended to be a continuing character. And you know that sounds, must sound crazy, um, but I, it, when I first created him, he was supposed to appear in, in one book and one book only. And I actually had to be talked into to writing the, the second Gabriel Lawn. Um, and I even had to be, when I, when I submitted my proposal for my, what was the third Gabriel Lawn book, which is a little bit of a minor classic called The Confessor, when I first conceived that novel, it was not a Gabriel Lawn novel. Um, and so here we are, um, my gosh, 18 years later, nine num uh, New York Times number one bestsellers, um, and he was never intended to be a, a continuing character. Well, I think I, I grew up reading Jack Ryan novels, Tom Clancy, and, and his he's interesting because his, his longevity allows Tom Clancy to make him evolve. I, 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 do, you, do you find that same luxury with Gabriel, or is it... Oh, he, he has obviously evolved. When I first created Gabriel a lot. He was sort of a, uh, a figure out of Greek mythology. He was living outside Israel at the end of the earth in Cornwall, England. His family had been destroyed. He wanted nothing to do with his country and his service. Uh, and he had to be talked into accepting an assignment uh, for Israeli intelligence. I never used the word Mossad in the series. I've always, I refer to them as the office, which is how they refer to themselves and, uh, conversationally. And, um, and so over that, I, I have written the books chronologically. They've gone in a straight line. They've been roughly in sync um, with the world as it is. Um, and so Gabriel Alon has gone from that, that, that man who was, you know, roughly in his mid to late forties at that, at that point, he's now the, the chief of Israeli intelligence. So he's, He's on a Ryan-like trajectory. I'm not sure he'll ever be the, the prime minister or president of Israel, but I wouldn't rule it out. I think the juxtaposition of Gabriel with Uzi is interesting. The the, the action Uzi figure has been there from the beginning, and it's really this action figure. Sorry, sorry. He's been in the first novel. Uzi Navalny was in the first yeah. novel. Uh, he and Gabriel were. Um, he was very jealous and competitive of Gabriel, and that dynamic has been there. Um, from the very beginning, Uzi Nabot is one of my absolute favorite characters. 
uh, in the series. Um, he's based loosely on someone I know, so I have a I have a very clear vision of him when I write him. Um, and I'm glad that you picked up on that. But anyway, I, I once again I interrupted you. Please continue. No, no. I mean, you're saying exactly what I was getting at. I mean, the, the action figure versus the quote-unquote true spy. I mean, this has to be something that you're contemplating when thinking about your book plots, right? Counterterrorism or traditional espionage. That that juxtaposition and that battle contemporarily is is really the question that I think all novelists dealing in this genre have to think about. Like, is it a, a book about ISIS like some of your, your previous ones, or do you go back to the traditional espionage? That, that to me, is kind of personified in the tension between these two characters. Well, I um, have, as I said, the, the Gabriel Lon's character has allowed me to... to tackle all sorts of different subject matter. Um, for two or three novels, uh, his, he, he, his first novel was a straight counterterrorism novel set against the backdrop of, of, of Camp David in Oslo. He then did a, a three stories where he sort of served as an investigator of crimes of the Holocaust um, and was wading through the through the unfinished business of the Holocaust, whether it was war criminals and money and art. Um, he has battled the Russians on numerous occasions. Um, he has battled the Iranians. Um, he has searched for lost paintings. And so he has been able to, you know, I have, I have a, a broad canvas and a varied palette when I, when I write about Gabriel Lon, and that's the, that's the true gift of the character. That's what he gives me as, as the novelist. Um, I guess that, that um, whether it is a, a novel where he is trying to find a terrorist or prevent an attack or solve a mystery, all of the books, um, have to have a certain amount of, 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 of violence and suspense um, uh, and, and intrigue. So, I mean, The Other Woman is a very tr traditional and, and very purposely so, sort of a traditional mole hunt, yeah. a little bit more of an espionage story. But, but I, I say that, and then it has complete, um, very commercial elements to it to make sure that it appeals to a, a, a mass audience. Um, and so I guess that that is a, a roundabout way of saying that, that all the books, whether they are deal with counterterrorism or something, you know, trying to steal a secret or something that's more traditional espionage, uh, do have a, the requisite amount of, of, of action and intrigue. They are, they are definitely hybrids. Uh, um, when, they, when they're finished. I was going to say The Other Woman is a wonderfully old-fashioned spy thriller, and I say that that is one of the biggest compliments you'll get from me, kind of thinking back to the way they used to be written and, you know, bringing back the Russians as a bad guy. I, it, it's They're such wonderful vil villains. Like, it's going to be so easy <laughs> because they just provide so much information and so much material because they're just villains themselves. Um, this is the fifth novel of, uh, that in which Gabriel has tangled with the Russians. Um, I wrote my first Gabriel Lon slash Russia novel was called Moscow Rules. Um, and, and you, I don't have to explain the Moscow Rules to you, but but um, um, 
I wrote that book. I guess it was I, I went to Russia to research it in the summer of 2006. It was published in 2007. Um, and when I wrote that book, um, in Russia, we were on fairly friendly terms still with the Russians, um, and there was a lot of hope uh, in in the West that that you know Russia was going to. Um, go in a different path. And the time that I spent in Russia talking to journalists and dissidents and getting a sense of the place under Putin um, left me with a very dis dis different impression of, of what our future was going to be with Russia. And I wrote a, a, a very negative um, um, portrait of Russia in that, in that novel. A lot of people sort of disagreed with it. And it turns out that I, I was correct. Um, and and so this this is actually my my fifth bite of the apple, at least Gabriel's. Uh, so he has a long history with the Russians, very long, violent history with the Russians. Um, and but the other woman is at its core a good old fashioned mole hunt. Um, and I uh, and I can say it in this podcast without without giving away too much it does the, the mole hunt stretches back into into history to perhaps you know the greatest act of, of treason and treachery ever and that's the case of Kim Philby and so I I very purposefully gave the novel a a cold war um, atmospheric and sensibility and it's Set in very Cold War settings, right. uh, Vienna, Bern. I borrowed um, incidents um, from the, the Philby case and applied them to my story, um, and just really set out to make the novel look, feel, taste, and read like an old-fashioned spy novel. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. Let me ask you before I want to talk about this mole hunt concept, but is it easier or harder to write about Russia now? Because they've really gone into the, the realm of Bond villain territory in real life. So how how hard is it to kind of make it go beyond that for a novel? I mean, they're they're really at this point, if you had written stuff about them using weapons grade chemical and biological weapons on the streets of London ten years ago, people would be kind of, uh huh, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, but they've now done it in real life. I mean, it, it, does it make it easier or harder for you? Uh, it, it, I, I had no, um, you know what? I'm getting a little bit of 
feedback uh, from the uh, 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 from the feed there. Um, look, I had no illusions about about um, Russia. I I knew that they were capable of this. If you go back to Litvinenko, they used polonium. Mm-hmm. They left it. They left a trail of radioactive material from Russia to the United Kingdom. They scattered it all over London. So there was there was a an indication right then and there that they were um, willing to do really reckless things. Right. But I must say that even I, it, I would not have written, I would not have been comfortable writing about the use of, in effect, a weapon of mass destruction on the, on the soil of, of the United Kingdom. And I still don't think we've really wrapped our head around that. And I don't even think the British government, at least not publicly, um, yes, they took uh, pretty stern steps, um, expelled a, a few people. But even, even I'm still um, mystified that there's not more public outrage over this. And now we've had actually a, a, an innocent British subject die in this attack. Um, Having been exposed to sort of secondary Novichok that was that was you know some sort of level of contamination that sickened this this poor woman, um, it is it is unbelievable it, 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 to, to see the lengths to which these guys will go. Um, but I've I've um, had a great deal of fun using the Russians as villains in in, in the Elon series uh, because. They are willing to do things that are, are on their face, unbelievable. Um, and they are good villains. And this novel sort of speaks to that. They're, they're, they, they are both um, have shown a, a propensity to be rather reckless in what they do, but they're also, and, and I wonder if you're, Friends in the business would agree to this. We we underestimate the SBR at our peril. This is a a, a very old, accomplished, determined intelligence service. Vladimir Putin uses his intelligence service um, as a force multiplier, not only to to gather information and, and collect intelligence on Russia's adversaries, but to um, affect policy and as, as sort of a weapon of uh, 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 hybrid warfare that, that, the, that, that uh, the Kremlin has developed. Um, and so it is fun to write about Russians as, as villains, but it's also deadly serious business because right. they are quite simply villainous. You refer in the book to some of the historical revisionism happening today in Russia, the revitalization of the Stalin cult of personality. And I spent time in Russia back in 2005, just before you were there. Is this something that you noticed when you visited? I mean, this seems to be something that people aren't realizing that the, the kind of the Stalin period, which we historically look at as being horrendous, is now being seen with nostalgia by a lot of Russians. Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, just a very basic little thing about, about, uh, that you could go into a, a, a Russian market or a Russian knickknack stand and, and buy nesting dolls with Stalin's image on it or T-shirts with Stalin's face on it. I mean, can you imagine if you went to Berlin 
and and you could buy a, a, an Adolf Hitler T-shirt. Right. Um, uh, Stalin um, um, has had a resurgence uh, under Putin. Putin has definitely um, sort of used Stalin nostalgia to to enhance his his own appeal. This is something I wrote about um, at length, actually. Um, in a book called *The Defector*, and it was it was actually uh, sort of the spine of that novel, this bizarre uh, rehabilitation of Stalin um, and and Putin sort of borrowing from Stalin to enhance his, his own power, and unfortunately, it's part of a a. Um, a global trend right now. I mean, uh, the strongman is is on the rise, um, and if we sort of look across the the, the globe right now and and look at some of the basic indicators, uh, democracy is in retreat. Uh, we have a, a neo czar in Putin. We have a neo emperor in Xi in China. We have a neo sultan in in in, in Turkey. Uh, and so I, I think that we, I had occasion to, to reread the, uh, Kennan's, George Kennan's long telegram and his, his article X, um, which is the sort of the basis of the policy of containment. And I think we really need to look at a, a new policy of containment when it comes to Putin. Uh, um, uh, Donald Trump will have met with, uh, Vladimir Putin on, on the day before this interview is broadcast. We don't know the outcome of that, of that uh, uh, meeting yet, but I think that we can expect that they will have a have a cordial meeting and that there will be pledges of cooperation. And, and you know, I'm just not sure we should be looking to cooperate with Vladimir Putin. Right. Uh, two previous presidents have tried, and they have been uh, paid the price for that. Um, Donald Trump is not the first American president who has, has tried for better relations with Vladimir Putin. George Bush looked into his, his eyes, got a sense of his soul, as he famously said. Uh, Hillary Clinton famously you know, pushed that, that silly reset button. Um, and those attempts to, to uh, make nice to Vladimir Putin failed, and they failed for a very specific reason, and that is Vladimir Putin does not want to be a friend of the West. Vladimir Putin wants to confront the West. Vladimir Putin wants his old empire back. Uh, he wants to weaken NATO, destroy NATO, weaken the special relationship um, uh, between the United States and Great Britain, and those are all the themes that I deal with in uh, The Other Woman. Yeah, and you had mentioned the idea of a mole hunt in Philby. I think Philby is really an interesting, particularly juicy historical figure, not like a Alderk Ames or a, a Bob Hansen or John Walker, because his motivation is ideological, which is so anachronistic today. You just don't see that very much, unless it's someone running off to join ISIS. But very few people are spying because of true belief anymore. Was, was Philby just a wonderful historical figure to dive into? I've been obsessed with Kim Philby um, since I was 22 years old and read My Silent War for the first time. Um, I was horrified by um, Philby's actions. Um, I and, and the and the 
I mean, this man literally, he probably has the blood of, of several hundred people, if not more, on his hands, the people that he betrayed, um, agents, uh, freedom fighters, uh, emigre um, people that we were in, trying to insert in, into the Soviet Union at that time. Uh, he, he, he got a lot of people killed because um, he did terrible damage to, to Western security. But he also led this incredible life. Um, and so it was fun to play fictitiously with that life um, and, and uh, spin a story um, from some sort of gap in that, in that life. And that's what I did with the other woman. Um, he, I've been intrigued with Kim Philby for a very long time. And this is a book that I wanted to write for a very long time, and I finally got around to it. You do a great job kind of giving the ins and outs of a mole hunt. How much did you look at some of the famous mole hunts from history to do research on how this would actually happen in real life? You know what? I, I um, uh, really focused like a laser beam on Philby himself. Um, and I had, I had read about... Um, and the Aldra James case, obviously. I mean, another great mole hunt. So the, 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 the basic mole hunt at its core starts with um, the premise that, you know, we are, we are losing assets or, or things are going wrong. Why are they going wrong? Um, and you start looking at, at um, who had access to what information and when. It's very complicated um, process. And, and so I borrowed um, the basics of, 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 of the classic mole hunt. Um, but where I really found my inspiration for this story is taking the Philby case itself and, and overlaying it on top of my story and, and um, uh, pillaging it at, at, um, from beginning to end. And, and, and the the inspiration for the for the beginning of of the novel comes from the Philby case. In fact, there's a little tiny reference. You will see the name Volkov in, mm -hmm. in the first chapter of the novel. Volkov was a a, um, a KGB officer who was trying to defect to the West in the 1940s, um, and he was going to come out and 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 tell uh, MI6 that there was a a mole within within the service that, that the KGB had planted a mole inside MI6, and Philby managed to get that man killed and, and thus protect himself. Um, and he did it a couple of times, actually. He managed to head off defectors uh, who, who could betray him. And that's sort of the, the um, inspiration for the story, drawing from Philby's life, applying it to my story. Uh, and thus giving the novel a very Cold War feel. When you're, when you're weaving fictional characters in the narrative of real-life historical figures, how much of a dance is that? How much historical license do you allow yourself? Uh, I am very careful with the historical license that I allow myself. And, and if you look at the, the author's note, I told the reader precisely where I broke um, with... with um, what, what was history and what was fiction. And um, I don't want there to be any, any confusion um, at, at 
the at the at the end of it. Some some writers um, prefer to just sort of you know let the leave, leave the reader at sea, if you will, and let him uh, figure out where 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 truth ends and fiction begins. But I I feel an obligation to tell um, the reader um, what is absolute truth or or you know accepted as 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 truth and, and where the where the fiction ends. So let me, let me wrap this up by asking you this question. You, you delve into the not all that new attempts by the Russians and others to use the media to control the narrative. And so as a former journalist, is this one of the most interesting aspects of the rejuvenation of the Russians as kind of the big baddie today is their use of media and social media and disinformation? Well, what, let's keep in mind um, that, that um, look, the KGB perfected this. Uh, technique um, in the going all the way back to the to the 1920s and 30s and the period of active measures where they were um, reaching out and trying to to uh, destabilize and, and affect um, events beyond the borders of the Soviet Union and disinformation campaigns um, were part of that um, playbook and and. You know, people always ask, are, are we in a new Cold War? Um, not yet, but we're, I think we're, we are um, the more analogous period is that period of the 1920s and 30s um, where um, the, the, the Soviet Union was very young um, and it was very aggressive in trying to affect events um, outside its borders. Um, and trying to, to, to weaken its adversaries. And, and black propaganda and disinformation campaigns were part of that. Um, the KGB has a long memory. Um, it, it has been around longer than the CIA. Um, they have a, they have a, a toolbox that they, that they have in place. They've updated it, obviously, to, to um, account for new technology. But this is very old stuff, um, and and they are have shown, um, you know, quite obviously that they're very good at it. Well, the book is the other woman. I can honestly say that um, it was refreshing to kind of re- read a book that could have been written if it wasn't for the modern day setting. Could have been written. You know, during the height of the Cold War, because it really is an old-fashioned spy thriller. And again, people know that that is a huge compliment coming from me. Uh, I really pre- appreciated the time that you took today. Uh, I will. All right. So, Inside Baseball. I'll, I'll let you know. I'm not a big spy novel fan. Uh, I read them because I have to. Uh, and I, I, I was very. I, I figured I would read this out of obligation to the job and not enjoy it. But I can honestly say I put it down. And I said, "Damn." I, that was that was a damn good book. And I even told people, I'm like, you know, they're like, how was the Silva book? I'm like, you know what? I might have to go. Well, I have no time to do this, but I have to go back and read the other ones at some point because I really enjoyed this. I thought it was done in such a wonderful, old fashioned way that really, really spoke to me. So I, I, I appreciate you writing this and I congratulate you for putting this book together because it's, it's really worth reading. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And uh, have a great day. OK, take care. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here. 
your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.